This is a high day because it's Sabbath. But whenever Sabbath occurs on a special weekend, it becomes what the Jewish people call a high Sabbath. And this is a high Sabbath because it's not only Easter for Christians, but it's Passover for Jews. And so this is a high, high Sabbath, okay? They don't often coincide. Sometimes they do, but every now and then they do. And I want to commend the East Lansing Church for, for wanting to celebrate Easter and Passover. I've been so blessed, Dick and I have been so blessed to be part of this because so many churches ignore it. And I just commend especially Steve and Mary Burlingame who see the, the importance of celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ on the, in this church, in this community. And I'm, I'm so p delighted to be a part of that. So thank you for what you do. It's a lot of work and they make it so special. Let's have a prayer and then I want to look at the book of Esther. Dear Lord, we don't dare open your book without asking your Holy Spirit to open it to us. We pray that you will help us see the great, glorious God and his salvation in this tiny little book. Thank you for this Easter weekend where we can celebrate your grace and mercy. Please bless us now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, a lot of Bible books cover a lot of time. The book of Genesis covers 2,500 years, and God saw fit to include certain things that happened to help us understand him. And then there's the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel cover a lot of time. But then there's a few other books that only cover a little bit of time. You know, the book of Jonah covers a few months. It's, it's such a great story that you don't realize it's just God focuses in on this one event in Jonah's life and that's all we know. The same thing happens in the book of Esther. The king Ahasuerus reigned over Media Persia a long time and Queen Esther was his queen for a long time, but God uh, persuaded uh, the uh, author of, of the book of Esther to just include this special little time in King Ahasuerus' long reign. And you remember on Resurrection Sunday in Luke 24 that these Bible students will remember, maybe adults need to look it up, that Jesus on Resurrection Sunday two times, once on the road to Emmaus with two disciples and then in Jerusalem with his disciples, said that all the Old Testament is about me. He said, remember, I've tried to teach you this, but and he says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms, it's all about me. And then, he, and then the, uh, Dr. Luke includes the phrase, he opened their understanding that they might understand scripture. So it, it's easy to read scripture. God made it very plain, but to really understand what it's talking about seems to take a little bit of more understanding that Jesus promises. So this morning, I want us to look at the book of Esther in light of the, the, what Jesus said on Resurrection Sunday. He said, it's all about me. Now, how is the book of Esther about Jesus? Let's look at the book of Esther and see what we can find. The book of Esther opens with an impressive description of the extensive range of King Ahasuerus' empire. And it reminds us that he was no mere lo local tribal chief. It says he ruled 127 provinces all the way from India to Ethiopia. That's a big world empire. And then it talks about all the officials that he had, that he, he, he had ranks and ranks of officers, officials, of courtiers and counselors and military commanders and governors, and they're all listed there as the book opens. So you're impressed who this king is. He's not just some little tiny uh, politician over a state. He, he has this huge worldwide empire. And his also mentions his nearly inconceivable wealth. And it lists even the precious stones and the, and the beautiful fabrics that he had in his, in his treasury. And to, to, I guess, further impress us how, uh, uh, what an impressive king this was, it says that 
even in just the third year of his reign, he had a 180-day festival to show it off. Now, my husband and I teach at Andrews University, and we covet even a week off from grading papers and going to committees. But here's this king. He has, he's, he, he, just this third year, he has an 180-day festival supplying everything that people need to eat. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? And on top of that, after that was over, that was just for his officials. After that, he had another seven-day fe seven feast for the normal people in Shushan. And it says there they were present from great to small in the garden of the court of the king's palace. Now, these two banquets are just the beginning of several important banquets that happen in this book where things happen. And during this second feast... Queen Vashti refuses the king's invitation to appear before a group, and, a group of drunken men, and she refuses to come. And the text tells us plainly, the royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and the drinking was not restricted, for the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So you can imagine what kind of state, mental state these people were in at this time. However, Vashti refused to come, and this infuriated the king. And it says in verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come into the king's command, and therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Well, we, we'll see through the book of Esther, this, he, he, he has a, a quick response of anger, and he also likes to ask counsel from his counselors. So he asked them what to do with Vashti's refusal. Verses 14 and 15. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the time, What shall we do with Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the, the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. Well, the king's eunuchs, I mean the king's counselor, interpreted Vashti's refusal as a deliberate act of rebellion, which was set up an ominous situation for the entire empire. And so one of the counselors answered the king, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people of all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women, and they will despise their husbands. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Medes and the Persians so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before the king and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make will be proclaimed throughout all the empire for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands both great and small. Well, you can imagine, this council pleased the king in his drunken state, so he ordered it to proclaim in all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script and his own language. Poor Vashti. Well, when the king's anger subsided, and perhaps in a more sober moment, he realized what he had decreed against her. No problem. His counselors were ready again with some more ideas. They told the king, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom and they will gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the capital. And let beauty preparations be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. Well, this pleased the king. And so he did it, verse 4. At this point in chapter 2, 
Esther and her foster parent are introduced right after this decree. They're introduced the first time we know about them. Now, Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin, of the family of Saul, the family of Kish, and had an adopted daughter, his uncle's daughter, for her parents had died. And it says in chapter 2, verse says, and Mordecai, Mordecai brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. Well, that little insert into the story, now we're told that the king's officials promptly carried out the royal decree. So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was also taken into the king's palace. That Esther was taken tells us that this was involuntary on her part, that she was taken into the, uh, drawn into the situation against, that she didn't volunteer for this. And it explains what Mordecai does next in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And notice what he does. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. She was taken away from him, and now he's concerned to know what's happening to her. That her foster father urged her not to reveal her ethnic identity means that in that Persian setting, the Jews were not altogether welcome. This gives you a hint. Now sequestered in the king's palace, Esther won the favor of the keeper of the women, who generously provided her with extra beauty preparations. We don't know what they are, but must have been wonderful. And they also gave her seven maidservants. After a year's preparation, notice it took a year to prepare her for this great event. When it was Esther's time to be taken to the king, what happened? She obtained favor in the sight of all that had seen her, and this soon included the king himself. For he loved her more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, and he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Again, another banquet, and this time to celebrate Esther. And it says in chapter 2, the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his servants and officials, and he proclaimed another holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to his generosity. Again, now at this point, another issue is inserted into the story, a sinister situation involving Mordecai, which will prove significant further on in the story. In those days, the text says, while Mordecai sat within the king's gates, in king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, big, thin, and terish, doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands and kill the king. So the matter became known to Mordecai, he told Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when the inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hung on gallows, and it was written, this, this great thing that Mordecai did to save the king was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this was an important event that these historical records inserted this, this thing that Mordecai did to save the king's life. That Mordecai was at the king's gate, as you know, as a a good Bible student, was an important place. He had an important position in the government. The king's gate was where politics were, were wrestled with and, and decisions were made, and that's kind of like the city hall of an empire. And that Mordecai was there shows that he was a high official in the Persian government. And 
that his saving the king's life was recorded is also significant and it will prove more significant as the story goes on. Chapter three, after these things, the king promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatta the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded this. But, ah, Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Haman's rise to political power is a source of pride for him. But it's tainted because just one person will not bow and pay him homage. And this continued on must, must for several days. And even Mordecai is urged by some of the king's servants to start bowing down to this man. But Mordecai explains that he's a Jew. And this is the first admission in the whole ten chapters about the Jewish uh, ethnicity of both Mordecai and, of course, then of Esther. Well, once Haman learned why Mordecai wasn't bowing, his hatred knew no bounds, and he determined to destroy all the Jews who were in the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. His strategy now became to persuade the king that the security of his kingdom was in doubt because it says in verse uh, 3, verse 8, a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other people's laws and they don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to allow them to remain. He presents the Jews as disobedient along with having a different set of laws. Don't you suppose that included the Sabbath, huh? Thereby threatening the stability of the empire. And Haman also now had a ready solution for this problem. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they all be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, which would be about 375 tons of silver, into the hands of those who do the work to bring it, bring it into the king's treasury. When you think of Haman being willing to give that much silver to annihilate the Jews. It gives you a chilling sense of the extent of his hatred because of Mordecai. Well, king, the king gave immediate, per, per, immediate permission. He even gave his signet, signet ring to Haman to give an official document. The, gate, the date of this document is very significant for us today because it is the day before Passover then. The festival that celebrates the triumph of the Jews over their Egyptian slave masters. And it ties us in with this decree. Why that date for the, for the slaughter of these Jewish people? Well, perhaps Haman and his people recalled that the Hebrews had originally been freed from slavery in Egypt and this festival reversed, I mean, celebrated that victory. Or they might have picked the date because of some astrological calendars, because some Babylonian texts, some ancient Babylonian texts, date the full moon as being a time of a good omen. Remember, Passover comes always at the time of the full moon. Who knows why it was, but they picked, this was the date that this decree, death decree was issued. Well, there are calculations were drastically misplaced for a dramatic reversal will happen as we'll see later in the story. 
Now the language of this second edict that the king authorized was similar in language to that demoting Vashti. The stipulations of that particular edict would have been hard to enforce throughout the 127 provinces whether all women were honoring their husbands. But this decree would be not hard to enforce because it was sent out by the king's royal horses and that the Jews were to all be annihilated wherever they were out throughout the empire. This mandate fully shows the hatred of Haman for, for the Jewish people. It also shows something very curious about the king. He's willing to issue a death decree without even asking Haman, well, who is this group of people that are threatening my kingdom? He just assumes that Haman knows, and it's okay for Haman to know, and it doesn't matter whether the king knows himself. And Haman doesn't offer the information. He just says there's a certain people, but he doesn't identify their ethnicity. Well, the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the king was proclaimed throughout all the country. And it says in Esther 3.15, then the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was very perplexed. That Ahasuerus and Haman sit down for drinks contrasts with the confusion that reigns among the people. Drinking again causes insensitive behavior by the king and Haman. But the city is thrown into confusion. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 shifts away from the le lethal actions at the court and Mordecai's reaction to them. Beginning with his desperate acts of mourning, he tears his clothes, he dons sackcloth, he puts on ashes and wails publicly. He was joined in mourning by the Jews throughout the empire with these same penitential actions. Mordecai was in the very nerve center of the empire. And Esther, though queen, knows nothing about it because she hasn't been called into the king's uh, uh, throne room for days. And she can't go in without invitation. But Mordecai knows. And so when Esther sends a servant to ask Mordecai what's wrong, he tells her about the edict and tells, uh, and tells her what's happened. And Esther sends him clothes to put on it to cover his sackcloth. Well, Mordecai tells the servant to tell Esther all that has happened and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasury to destroy all the Jews. He also gave the eunuch a copy of the decree to give to Esther. That he, and he told her that she should go into the king and make supplication and plead before him for her people. Well, Esther responds by describing the dangerous situation this puts her in. 411, chapter 411. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law to put all to death, except those to whom the king puts out the golden scepter, that they may live. And I myself have not been called to go into the king for 30 days. Well, Esther's foster father responds by spelling out the difficult circumstances that are prevailing. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows 
whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai plainly stating that her people will perish suggests that he wanted Esther to realize that Haman and his anti-Jewish fellows will eventually discover her identity and she would lose her life too even though she's in the palace. Moreover, the identity of another place from which relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews suggests that Mordecai is also recognizing that Esther's astonishing rise to the king queenship must have been part of God's providential plan for his people. Esther's next response to her foster father reveals her brave character. She says, chapter 4, verse 16, Go. Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She doesn't now rely on her great beauty, which had originally charmed the king, but upon God. Her concluding words, if I perish, I perish, reveals her resignation to dying, whichever way it would come, either from Haman or from the king if he doesn't hold out his scepter. Esther has moved in this story already from being an orphan to an adopted daughter of an exile to the winner of a royal contest to the being the queen of Media and Persia and now the pivotal person in a crisis hanging over her people. While the king is often described drinking, Esther fasts and prays. While Haman believes he controls the destiny of the Jewish people, Esther is humble and fasts. For her, the future is dangerous, but she is ready to die if necessary. Esther had been listening to Mordecai's urging to now sends Mordecai instructions and he does what Esther tells her, him to do. And he tells all the Jews in Shushan to fast and pray. Chapter 5. The chapter opens conveying the magnitude of the situation Esther will face by using the root of the word king or royalty over and over. Listen to this verse. Verse 1, chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house on which the king sat on his royal throne in his royal house facing the entrance of the king. So you, it sets up the, 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 the situation as being really precarious. It's right in the presence of the king. She doesn't come in the back door, but she faces this head on. The fact that this is on the third day also is a decisive measurement of time. In many biblical stories, the third day is when something big will happen. Remember, Jesus was resurrected on the third day. Esther approaches the king in her royal robe, which would underscore her status, for she had feared that the king's reaction to her uninvited tension, uh, appearance would be lethal to her. However, she wins his grace again, just as she'd done during the contest, and he holds out his golden scepter. In approaching the king unbidden, Esther is defying the law, thus seemingly repeating Vashti's disobedience. 
by not obeying the king. And also confirm Haman's charge that the Jews are disobedient people. However, the king doesn't know Esther's identity, ethnicity yet. And Esther only enters into the courtyard, waiting the king's invitation to enter the throne room. As a wise woman, she humbly approaches him there, hoping he would invite her. Well, the king accepts her. And now Esther, in his presence, sets up the next series of events by first inviting the king and Haman to a banquet she would prepare for them that day, another banquet. Later at the meal, Esther responds, responds to the king's second, second inquiry about what she wants. What do you want, Queen Esther? By inviting the two gentlemen to another banquet, the same threesome, the next day. Now, this doesn't mean that Esther lost her nerve when she was finally in a position to accuse Haman. Rather, it talks about her, it suggests her deep strategy in dealing with the situation. For Esther tells the king, tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Instead of accusing Haman this first opportunity, the two are invited to come to another banquet. And then the queen will make her request known. Moreover, by seeming to honor Haman, she hides the real situation, for he returns home full of joy over being elated to, be elated to invite to a private dinner with the royal couple a second day. However, his joy is soon dimmed because on the way home he passes Mordecai, who refuses to bow. Notice what it says in the text, five, nine, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart, but when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand and tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, every way the king had promoted him and how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And then he said, besides this, Queen Esther has invited no one but me to come in with the king to a banquet which he prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her to eat with the king. Yet all of this avails me nothing because of Mordecai. He simply cannot be happy or suppress his anger when just one person refuses to bow down to him. What a person, right? Well, after Haman expresses his frustration about Mordecai, his wife becomes his counselor and tells him what to do. She says, just build some gallows. Hang him on it. Though a conflict arises between two men, Haman and Mordecai, it is now two women who determine what's going to happen next. Now, chapter 4 marked the turning point in the narrative for Esther. But chapter 6 now is the turning point of the whole story. And because chapter 6 links together several amazing coincidences that lead to the climax of the story. Chapter 6 begins with the king's mysterious inability not to sleep. Now remember, you Bible students, earlier Babylonian kings who could not sleep were about to be surprised by God. And it's going to happen again. The king's insomnia turns out to be one of the significant elements in the story. Such unexpected timings link together to form the theology of the book of Esther. Number one, that Ahasuerus could not sleep one night would be really unimportant, except for the coincidence that he calls for the records to be read to him. And guess what? 
the records happened to open to the report of Mordecai saving his life. Hmm. Now that would be insignificant, except that, the, that just at this moment when the records are, are read, what happens? Haman comes to the court early to try to figure out what to do with Mordecai. The ground is laid for the next drama, which is a major turning point in the story. Note the ironic timing. Haman attempts to come to the court early to get rid of Mordecai, and it ends up with him having to honor Mordecai. Haman sets himself up for his fall, and it, su and it succeeds because of Haman's great pride and gross overestimation of himself. He simply cannot imagine that anybody, the king would want to honor anybody but him. So he paints this elaborate picture of what, what should be done to the man the king delights to honor. Well, after parading Mordecai through town, Haman is humiliated and hurries home in a disgrace, mourning and covers his head, chapter 6, 12. This becomes the first sign of the reversal of the genocide that Haman had arranged. The ominous dimension of this story now becomes explicit in the words of Zerash as she listens to Haman's parading Mordecai, of Haman's parading Mordecai, chapter 613. Haman told his wife Zerash and his friends everything that had happened to him. His wise men and his, his wise men and his wife Zerash say to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Now the narrative doesn't tell us when Haman's wife and his friends learned that Mordecai was Jewish. Jewish Mordecai had admitted it, but how, when, when they found out, we don't know. But they rightly interpret the situation as an omen of things to come. While Haman's wife analyzes the situation, however, the king's eunuch come and hurry him off to the third banquet he has with the king and Esther. The reader being reminded again that important things happen at banquets in the book of Esther. With the first banquet invitation, remember Zeresh and Haman's friends had advised him to deal with Mordecai by building gallows to hang him on. Now, however, Haman is in a different mood and actually on the first part of his journey to his own death. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as the case is in the first banquet, the king gets down to business right away, saying for the third time to his queen, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half of the empire, I will give it to you. This time, Esther doesn't ask for another banquet, as before, but now she begs for her very survival. Notice how her plea is constructed. She said, If I and my people. She first appeals to herself, I and my people, hoping that his affection for her will now be able to be widened to include her people. And she tells him what has happened and describes the decree against her people. Well, as your heirs, the king responds by saying, who's behind this? Who's behind this? And wondering how he knows there's a single person behind this. Who's behind this? Who is this adversary and enemy? Who is he and where is he and who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? 
You can imagine the anger of the king, which rises very easily in the book of Esther. <laughs> Esther's reply is couched in words that respond to the king's question. She said, it's this man, and it's this man, and names him. Wow, Haman is then stricken with terror before the king. And the king has stomped out in anger. And the king and queen are obviously against him now, not, not on his side. The king stomps out in a huff. The rage that he had against Vashti is the same word described as his rage now against Haman. And he, he, he stomps out. And so what happens? Haman realizes his life is in danger, so he throws himself on Esther's couch, begging for mercy. Well, the king stomps back into the room, and he notices Haman falling on Esther's couch. And he imagined that he's catching Haman, something that even in his morals is worse, making a move on the queen. So the king interprets his gesture this way. As the king interprets his gesture this way, the prime minister's end draws near. And the king says, will he assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left his mouth, the servants cover Haman's head. That act of falling seals Haman's fate. And it's full of meaning. That word fall, fall, fall appears all through this story. For example, Mordecai's refusal to fall prostate before Haman starts the whole process. That same word. In the first, in his plan to annihilate Mordecai, Haman arranged for the lot to be cast or to fall before him to determine the date. And then when Haman is forced later to run before Mordecai, hailing him as the man who the king desires to honor, his wife tells him, if Mordecai, before, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will never overcome him. You shall fall before him, and in the original languages uses that word fall, fall twice. The number of times that word is used tell us it's a significant word in understanding this narrative. The king now in even greater rage because of Haman's perceived sexual assault on his wife, again listens to one of his counselors. They always have a ready suggestion for the king. They said, the, uh, Mordecai has actually built some gallows to hang Mordecai, uh, 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 Haman has actually built gallows to hang Mordecai on, on. And the king says, hang him on it. And that's the end of our dear brother Haman. <laughs> Chapter 8 continues with these major reversals that have taken place and will continue through the end of the book. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, the dramatic actions reported in chapter 6 and 7 find their climax the same day. This all happens in one day. A lot of time passes between these chapters, but it's the same day. The, the, uh, the same day, what happens? The king awards Haman's estate to Queen Esther, and it, uh, uh, Esther discloses her, her relationship to Mordecai, which talks about, defines her as Jewish, and... Um, which was a brave thing to do. The king transfers his signet ring from Haman to Mordecai, which they must have grabbed off of Haman's finger when he was taken to be hung. And then, uh, now, Zeresh had said, you're going to fall before Mordecai, and on that very day, Haman's estate is given to Mordecai. However, the deadliness of the situation continues. 
chapter 8, verse 3. Now Esther spoke again to the king and fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme with which he had devised against the Jews. From the similar wording of this approach to the king in the, one in the earlier chapter uh, 6, it appears that Esther once again risked her life by initiating conversation with the king. And the king has granted her things she hasn't asked for. He gave her Haman's estate and Mordecai is promoted. However, he's neglected the things she wants most, protection for her people from the death sentence. This suggests that this king has not de demonstrated any sense of wisdom in the overall situation. His dealing with Haman's property while the ultimate matters of life and death hang in the balance remind us of, of the state of this king's morals. So again, Esther falls before the king to, uh, to beg him that he stop the calamity that Haman had planned against his people, her people. And Esther cleverly admits all the references to the king's role in authorizing this decree. She only mentions the letters that Haman sent out. And, but she points out to the suffering that her, her people's destruction will inf inflict on her and begs him to reverse the edict. Well, the king is a prisoner to his government and he can't reverse the law. The laws of the Mede and the Persian can't be changed. He reminds her of that. However, he does tell her we can, ha we can have an alternate decree to go against the first decree. We can't stop it. The first decree, we can make a, a decree to alter it. And so he proclaimed a, he told Esther to write a decree to, to, to counteract the first decree and do as you see fit, just the same words he'd given to Haman. Do as you see fit. So a new edict is, is issued in chapter 9. This genocidal edict that Haman is issued is now issued in just the opposite way. And it sounds so harsh, it sounds so harsh, but it's actually repeating the very words of the first edict, but now reversing those that can protect themselves rather than just be killed. It uses similar terminology, but reverses the wording of who can really act on the edict. In Haman's original edict, there's no mention of swift horses. It mentions the king's horses. But now this new edict is sent out with the king's swift horses so that the counteracting uh, decree goes out with even faster uh, horses than the first decree had. It also says that they were able to take the plunder of the people they killed. They were to kill the men, the women, and the children and take plunder. But it's really fascinating. The to remember that this edict is mirroring the wording of the first edict. So they didn't make up this thing about killing. They were just talking about the opposite way it would be treated. And then it mentions three times that the Jewish people defended themselves, but they took no plunder. Three times. Showing that they were not in this to get rich, but to just to protect themselves. They didn't lay a hand on the spoil. And now instead of wearing sackcloth and ashes, Mordecai is clothed in fine linen and blue and blue and white linen, and the whole city of Shushan rejoices. Now chapter 9 tells us about how this rever great reversal saved the lives of the Jewish people and also established a new festival for the Jewish people to celebrate once a year, the Feast of Purim, which was celebrated by our Jewish brothers and sisters just a few weeks ago. In one verse, this great reversal is given to us in chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. But on that day, the enemies of the Jews who had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Verse chapter 10. Verse 1. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the count of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, was great among the Jews and was well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Quite a story, isn't it? What can we learn from it? Well, first of all, we need to know that this whole situation was unnecessary. Remember, before King Ahasuerus, King Cyrus had allowed all the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. And if they'd all trusted God and gone, this situation would have never arisen. Though their exile had been deserved, remember Jeremiah prophesied for 40 years, if you don't turn away from this wickedness you're doing, from burning your children in the fire, you're going to have to go into exile and be punished. But they didn't, so they were rightly taken into exile. And then God gave them a chance to go back home and rebuild the temple, and they, many of them stayed in Persia. But God didn't desert them there. Isn't that precious? Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? He stayed with his people even through their lack of faith. This was similarly, God did this similarly during the Babylonian part of their captivity. Remember, they, the, they, the first Babylon took them into captivity, Babylonian king, and what does God do? You think God would say, now you deserve the 70 years of punishment, I'm just, I'll see you when it's over. But he sends Ezekiel, remember? The, the great prophet of the captivity in, during while they're in Babylon, he sends prophet Ezekiel to counsel and encourage them with hope that God is still with them. Beautiful picture of God, isn't it? Beautiful picture of God. Mordecai now in this story is an exile from Judah who stayed there, but he remains faithful to God in defiance of the king's command at the risk of his life and finally becomes second to the king. Queen Esther, she's an exile and an orphan and also stays in Persia. But because of her great courage and God's giving her this courage, she rises to royal heights and delivers her people. The lives of Mordecai and Esther recall two other Israelite exiles who lived in foreign countries, Joseph and Daniel, who also rise to authority and bring great blessing to their captive countries and are part of the fulfilling of the promise to Abraham. Remember God told Abraham, through you, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And God does this through Joseph and Daniel and Esther. Esther's self-sacrifice, her humility, and her holy wisdom make her one of the great leaders in Scripture. What we see in Esther's life is found supremely in the life of Jesus, who was willing to give his life, who delivered us from our worst enemies, sin and death. Because of Christ, we now can rest just as the Jews rested from the death decree in their time. Now, the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther, so some also people think it's a pagan history. And they also say there's no, no, no religious rites recorded. But 
The text speaks of crying and mourning and sackcloth and ashes and fasting and praying. Mm. Is God really missing from the book? Why would you do these things if you weren't appealing to God? Why would you do these things? Just because he isn't named doesn't mean he's not involved. In fact, we might understand that he's responsible for this extraordinary list of strange coincidences that fall into place. The unexpected vacancy of the queenship at the Persian court, the surprise accession of a Jewish woman to be queen in Persia, Mordecai's discovery of the king's threat, of king, the threat on the king's life, and Esther's favorable acceptance by the king, though that was against the law, and the king's insomnia. Just at the time when they're reading the record of Mordecai that Haman comes in and asks how, who the king could honor. I mean, all these just add up so quickly. And it seems reasonable to assume that the writer of the book of Esther didn't need to scream out God's name because all these miraculous coincidences point to him. There's obvious parallel to the story of Joseph, too. Because remember, the, in the book of Genesis, we have all 11 chapters on Joseph, and God never directly speaks to Joseph either. But Joseph is so close to God that God surrounds him with grace, and he can see that the terrible things that happened to him are part of God's plan for blessing his people. It's a beautiful picture, thing that we can learn about God. The, and the, the logic of the story points to some power far beyond human control. Esther does marry a Gentile, but so did Joseph in Egypt. And then, remember in the story of the, in, in Egypt, Exodus, many people became Jews because of their fear of the Jews, and the same thing happens in Esther, the end of the book. Many people become, uh, become join the Jews. I love the, the description of chapter 8. And in every province and city where the king's commanded decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and holiday. Then, many of the people in the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Beautiful picture of the power of God. In the theology of the book of Esther, a divine hidden force arranges events in such a way that even against the most daunting death decree, his people are protected and delivered. The book of Esther contains an impressive story of the miraculous deliverance of God's people. Perhaps... We can learn from this book of the power, especially of the power and grace of God. When you think this didn't even need to happen, and yet God worked all these miracles. It gives me hope for my life that God won't desert me when I don't do the things that he's asked me to do. Perhaps even the hymn writer was recalling Queen Esther when he wrote some of the words of the first praise hymn we sang this morning. Praise to the Lord, who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shieldeth thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Let's conclude our worship this Passover Easter Sabbath by praising again the great deliverer for his streams of mercy, never ceasing, which call for songs of loudest praise. Let's sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, number 334.